Well, good morning. I'm going to give you guys a heads up, okay? Um, if I suddenly turn and start coughing and hacking, I'm okay. Uh, I've had this lingering cough for about three weeks now, and I don't know what to do about it. So, um, But hopefully, Lord willing, um, that won't happen, and we'll be fine. Um, yesterday morning, we had a great men's breakfast, uh, and, uh, and we, we, we always have a great men's breakfast session, but uh, we, we, we had a great turnout, had lots of fellowship, lots of conversating. Um, the highlight, of course, was um, Alex uh, chose to, to cook for us this time, and, uh, and he's not here right now. He's back there with the youth group, so I'm not saying this just to get on, on his good side, because he's not even hearing me right now, um, but that was good. Um, so if you guys haven't had Alex cook for you yet, you have yet to live. Okay, but, um, but also yesterday morning, we, we were blessed uh, with, uh, with our dear brother Mark, who brought forth the devotion um, and, uh, and what he felt God had laid upon his heart, and uh, he was talking about truth. Um, he was talking specifically about the belt of truth, or as we came to clarify it in our group, the utility belt of truth, okay? If you know, then you know. Um, and, uh, and how, how truth, um, truth binds everything together, right? Truth binds all the armor um, into one effective uh, uniform, right? Um, and one of the things that Mark said is it's, it wasn't something new. You know, many of us have, have heard this before, and many of us have said this before, but it's so good to be reminded. It's so important to be reminded. It's so, um, it's, it, there's, there's so much life and power in being reminded that, um, that there shouldn't be multiple versions of us, okay? That if we are to be, and so in yesterday's context, if we were to be men of truth, although in the context of the whole church, I'll just say, if we are to be people of truth and people of integrity, um, then there shouldn't be different versions of us that people encounter dependent upon where we are. So if there's a version of you that people know and encounter at church, and that version of you disappears when you go home and you become someone or something different, um, then you're not living in truth. Then you're not walking with integrity and in the context of our, of our study through Colossians, you are not uh, living out the identity of Christ. And, and all too often we, we hear about this or we see this or we experience this, that we are one person when other people are, are watching, um, and then we're another person when we're at home, when the people who are most important are, are watching it. And, Growing up in the church and, and you know, um, going to Bible college and seminary and all this stuff, um, unfortunately, one of the testimonies, one of the stereotypes of people in ministry, whether it's a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, you hear this so often, and so often it comes from their spouse or it comes from their kids, that, yeah, they're a different person when they're at home. And when they're in the church or when, when they're in public, everyone's like, oh, what, you know, this is, this is a, a, a great man or woman of, 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 of God, and, um, and we look up to them and we admire them. And then when you talk to their spouse or to their kids, you find out that they have a very different experience of that person in the home. Um, and so 
um, identity in Christ should not change or shift or diminish in any way based on where we find ourselves, based on our location, based on where we are geographically, right? Identity in Christ is permanent. We ought to be the same person sitting in these seats right now that our kids encounter at home, that our spouses encounter at home, that our coworkers encounter in the workplace. And so in the rest of Colossians chapter three, uh, Paul is gonna get, he's, He's, he's going to dive into how does identity in Christ play out in the home. He's going to address all these different roles that people in his time would have had in the home. He's going to say, okay, if, if, if Jesus truly is who we say he is, and if we truly are who he says we are in him, okay, then there's not just this um, like, uh, like intangible lifestyle or standard. Um, there's also tangible ways the identity in Christ should consistently and dramatically affect the way we interact with other people, especially the people in our own home. Um, so today's scripture is going to challenge us that in whatever we do and um, whatever we say, wherever we are, who, whoever we are with, we never put off the identity of Christ. And we should always, we should do everything in the name of and to the glory of King Jesus. Okay, so we're in Colossians chapter three. We're gonna start in verse 15. And if you remember before this, um, uh, Paul has just talked about the things that we put off in Christ and the things that we put on in Christ. And we looked at how, uh, you know, he, he uses this, this, uh, this metaphor of, of putting on and putting off. And so right before the verse 15, he says, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, all right? So after, after establishing, here's what the new clothing, the new wardrobe in Jesus looks like, he says in verse 15. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna read verses 15 through 17. I'm gonna point out a few things, <clears throat> and then we'll, we'll go from there. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. So the New King James has this word, admonishing. If your translation has a different word, it might say encouraging. Um, that word literally means encouraging or warning. So you're gonna encourage one another in, their, in, in, in your brothers and sisters. You're, you're gonna encourage them in, in their pursuit of Jesus, and you're gonna warn them about the things that would derail them or take them off that path into conforming to Christ, um, teaching and admon admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so in these verses, there are three things that, that I want to point out, and Paul is going to essentially say, before you can... Um, before you can live out your identity in Christ to the people in your homes, these things have to be true. Because if you're gonna try and do the things, if you're gonna try and live out the roles that Paul's going to describe at the end of this chapter in the power of your own flesh or in your own strength or in your own will, then you can't do it. And Paul says, unless these things rule in your life, what I'm about to say is gonna be impossible. But in Christ, all things are possible. And we're gonna see how Jesus will accomplish them for us. He's already accomplished them for us and when we are in him, he shares with us that victory. So um, 
Paul says in verse 15 that the peace of God must rule in, he says, let, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule, um, it means uh, to govern or to decide like, like you would find, like, like an umpire or a referee, um, to, to decide how you're going to act, how you're going to respond. Um, and Paul is saying the person whose identity is in Christ is ruled by the peace of Christ. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. If your identity is in Christ, truly, then biblically, your heart is ruled by the peace of Christ. And this peace doesn't just rule in our hearts, it guards our hearts. In Philippians 4, 7, Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so we're going to look at in a minute how very often peace, the, the, the peace of God is not what rules in our hearts. Very often we allow other things to rule our hearts because sometimes we're deceived into believing that other things can be more effective at guarding our hearts than the peace of God. All right, but it's important that if you're in Christ, that means the peace of Christ is what rules and guards your heart. And that peace is the standard by which you measure your interactions with other people. The peace of God is the standard by which you measure and decide and live out your interactions with other people. In Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it's possible, now, you know, if you live long enough, um, you will find that with some people, it's impossible, right? Uh, there are going to be people in life who, for no real reason and, and, and for nothing that you can figure out, they just will not like you, okay? And, and, uh, and sometimes we can drive ourselves crazy thinking, okay, you know, um, why don't they like me? How do I get them to like me? Or if we're not trying to do that, then we're getting angry at them for not liking us. We're saying, well, I don't like you either, you know? And, um, and it just drives us nuts. Uh, but Scripture says, if you're in Christ, and then as much as you can, as, as much as it is up to you, um, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes living peaceably means just taking a step back, right? Sometimes it means, all right, um, I'm just going to, you know, love you from a distance. I'm going to pray for you, whatever. Um, but when you're in Christ, uh, the peace of Christ rules and guards your heart, and it affects how you interact with others. Your desire, your goal um, is to live peaceably with all men, not just the people you like, not just the people who agree with you, but with everyone. Um, and so very often, instead of peace, we allow anger to rule in our hearts, or we allow fear and anxiety to rule in our hearts, or, or sometimes we allow pride to rule in our hearts. And all of these things have the, the illusion of being able to protect our hearts, right? Um, we, we sometimes protect our hearts with, with anger because we think there's, there's strength in that, but it's, it's a false strength. Sometimes we protect our hearts with with fear, because you know we're like, well, well, if 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 I don't open myself up and make myself vulnerable, that means nothing can can hurt me, and so we let fear guard our hearts. Sometimes we 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 let pride guard our hearts. Well, if if I just think of myself as better than anyone else, 
that means they can't hurt me, right? That's, that's pride. All those things break down. All those things are, um, are pathways to misery. So why is it so important which of those characteristics will, will rule in our hearts? Because, again, we're about to read about husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and servants, okay? And, and interactions that you have in your home, in, interactions that you have in the place where you are the most vulnerable, in the place where your guard is down, okay? Um, and and, and I, I don't have to tell you guys that oftentimes in our day-to-day interactions with our spouses and with our kids and with our parents and with everything else, sometimes we have a split second to figure out how we are going to react to something. Sometimes we have such, such a small window of time um, to decide how we're going to respond to offenses if someone comes at us with something that's offensive or with something that is uh, a disagreement or a concern. And a lot of the times, we don't have the opportunity to sit there and think, okay, let me think through my response. They just said this. Okay, here's what I'm hearing, and here's what they mean, and here's, here's how, how I'm going to respond, Okay. Um, in, in, in an ideal world, we would be able to think through our responses every time like that. But most of the time, we can't. Most of the time, we have a split second to figure out how we are going to react when someone offends us, when someone disagrees with us, when someone says something that is hurtful to us, okay? And in that moment, in that split second, whatever rules your heart will decide how you react. If anger rules your heart, you're going to find that your reactions are often filled with anger, okay? And you will react in anger. You'll start escalating. You'll yell. You'll get offended. You'll be, how dare you? (laughs) Um, If pride rules your heart, you're going to find your reaction is to defend yourself. Your reaction is going to be to to prove there's no way that you're wrong and there's every way that the other other person is wrong. (laughs) Um, If fear rules your heart, you're going to find yourself doing the opposite. You're going to find yourself giving in to too easily, easily and agreeing to things that you don't really feel and think, okay? So whatever rules your heart is important when it comes to how you interact with the people in your home. That's why Paul says, let the peace of God rule your hearts, and that peace of God will guard your hearts, and it will lead you into, into the peaceful relationship with those who are in your home, and that's part of what it means to be in Christ. Um, and if you're in Christ... Um, that piece is part of that new wardrobe that we talked about last week. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So there it is. You don't have to guard your heart with fear. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to guard your heart with, with anxiety. Jesus says, I've given you my peace, and my peace is different. My peace is not like the rest of the world. For the rest of the world, peace is just the absence of conflict. But the peace of Christ is complete reconciliation with your creator, with who he's called you to be, with the people in your lives, wholeness, okay? Um, So Paul says again, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Uh, This is impossible uh, again, I know I've already said this, but it's impossible to do this if we are not in Christ. Okay, verse sixteen. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace in your hearts to the Lord. So um, when I was a child, uh, my, uh, my dad had a rule for me uh, because I loved to play Super Nintendo back in the day, okay? And I loved watching cartoons, I still do. Um, and, so, and so I would get home from school, and the first thing I wanted to do was to plug in the SNES, turn it on, and start gaming, start watching cartoons. My, my dad eventually made a rule. He said, Jonathan, you cannot, get on, you cannot play your game or watch TV until you've read your Bible for at least 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, Dad, you're killing me. You know? and, and thankfully, uh, that was not the rule for Saturday mornings. He, he was merciful enough to let Saturday mornings be what they were. If you, if you did not grow up watching Saturday morning cartoons, then you're just, you're so deprived, okay? Um, but uh, but so, so, so I, you know, that was the rule. And so, and so I would read my Bible as, as, as a kid, not because I had a hunger for it, but because I knew this, okay, if I want to get to what I really want to be doing, this is the thing I, I got to do first. And so I went through Genesis, I went through Exodus, because when, when you're a kid, you just read things from cover to cover. You don't realize, right? And so I got to like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on, right? You know, so um, so uh, you know, I I endured that, and that was fine. But as I got older, um, and as as God led me more and more into identity in Christ, I didn't need someone to force me to read His Word, right? I didn't need to be coerced. I didn't need to be bribed. Because right, I'm an adult now, I can watch cartoons whenever I want. All right, so but but uh, like no one needs to like like manipulate me or say, Jonathan, I've been like I don't have to be guilted into it. Okay, there there came a, a point in my life where God gave me a hunger for His Word, and I I no longer did it because I was supposed to do it. I did it because I longed for it. And and lest you get the wrong idea, um, that hunger in me has not always been as uh, as potent as it should be, there are definitely times, like any appetite, I suppose, where that hunger will kind of wane. And, and when the hunger does wane, my, my joy and my peace and just my life are poorer for it. I notice it. I, there's, there's, there's a very distinguishable difference when, when, when I, I, I allow that hunger to kind of go unsatisfied. And, and then I begin to feed other things, Right? But the more we feed that hunger for God's word, the more I choose to feed my spirit on the holy word of God and allow his truth to make its dwelling place in the core of my being, then there's abundance of life and freedom. And so Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word make its dwelling place in you, not just facts, not just knowledge, not just like you could win trivia on the Bible. That's not what God wants, all right? He wants the truth of his word to dwell in you richly, all right, to, to penetrate every part of your life. And then he says, um, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Okay, and this is super important. We must add wisdom to the richness of our knowledge of God. Um, I remember being a kid and, and, and being in elementary school, and they made us sing this song, uh, Acknowledge is Power. Have you guys heard that phrase, Acknowledge is Power? Yeah, okay, well, it is, okay? Knowledge is power, and um, unearned knowledge is dangerous power. When you accumulate knowledge, when you gain knowledge, 
And, and this is for, for all of us who are living in this time, and, and if you've grown up with this or if you're just kind of getting into it, um, we have so much knowledge at our fingertips, right? I mean, you can like, pull out your phone or whatever, and, and you can find almost anything, all right? And you would think that that, 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 that would be great. But the problem with that is um, when, we, when you haven't gone through the discipline and the process to earn that knowledge, there's no humility with it. And there's no wisdom with it. And so when we, we, we just wield knowledge like a loaded gun without having the discipline to know what we're doing, okay? So Paul says, you know, it's not just knowledge, but in all wisdom. We must have wisdom in how we use God's word. That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, that we have to add to knowledge self-control. He says, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith a virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, um, to self-control, perseverance, and he goes on. That word for self-control literally means temperance or um, balance your knowledge with self-control. Um, why is that important? Okay, so um, I have a book up here. Uh, plenty of people throughout history have gained a ton of knowledge about Scripture and have not, um, not invited the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to, to to show them how to use that knowledge. This is one of my seminary books. It's called Jesus' Resurrection, Fact or Figment. I hope you guys know where you stand on that. Um, and what this is, this is uh, a book that is a transcript of, of a debate between two sides of whether Jesus was literally, physically resurrected. I'm going to read to you the profile of one of the people in this, in this debate. His name was Gerd Ludemann. He's, he was German, so I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he was the professor of New Testament and director of the Institute of Early Christian Studies at the University of some German name that I can't pronounce, um, and a visiting scholar at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of Resurrection of Jesus and many other studies in New Testament and early Christianity. I Googled this guy. Um, he, he taught at several different, uh, I want several, maybe like, like three different universities. He was part of a program that would train um, aspiring pastors, right? He's the guy in his book arguing against the historicity of a physical resurrection of Christ. And he went on, uh, I think he's passed away now, but later in life, he, he said that he only thinks about 5% of our New Testament is accurate. He proclaimed to be an atheist at one point, okay, but this is a guy who, who, has, who had a ton of influence in educating younger people about Scripture, who had in himself a ton of knowledge about Scripture. And in this book, there are, he, he has a couple of people who are, who are supporting him. And so it says, um, um, yeah, uh, Michael Goulder and Roy Hoover, both New Testament scholars, offer their support for Gerd Ludemann's view that the resurrection was based on the guilt-induced visionary experience of the disciples. Two other New Testament scholars who are saying, yes, we also um, we disavow a physical resurrection. So, so this is why this is important, and this isn't, I, I could give you example after example, and, and, and unless you get the wrong idea, I'm not trying to like, you know, come down on, 
on an advanced education. I am super grateful for the experiences and the things I learned going to Bible college and seminary. And there was a lot of, there's, there's a lot of good there too. Sometimes seminary gets like a bad rap, right? Um, but there are things that we have to be careful of because it's not enough just to have knowledge. We can have all the knowledge of Scripture. We can study it inside and out. We can make a career in a living studying Scripture and still miss Jesus, right? That's what happened uh, in the time of Jesus with all these Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and scribes, and they were seen as the ones, like, these are the guys who know what they're talking about. They've studied it inside and out. And, and they knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They, they, they knew what the prophets said. They, they knew all of those things, and they still missed Jesus. And so Paul says it's not enough that you just have knowledge of the word of God, but in all wisdom, and the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit, he says, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom. So much harm, so much violence has been done to the kingdom by people who have obtained great knowledge of Scripture but have lacked, have lacked the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Then he says, um, teaching and admonishing, and I love this because when we think about teaching and encouraging, this is what we think about, like one person up here talking. Um, Paul doesn't say teaching and admonishing through sermons and Bible studies. Which, which those are good. We should do those. But he says, um, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Um, and so uh, these songs and hymns can be great sources of knowledge and wisdom and teaching when they are grounded in the truth of Scripture. And Paul encourages us to make use of them. Uh, she doesn't know I'm going to do this, but... <laughs> um, uh, I've, I've had the, the privilege of overseeing uh, the worship ministry for the last year. And one of my favorite things about that is, is talking to Emily and like meeting with her regularly. You guys have no idea how much Emily, how, how much thought Emily puts into the songs that, that, that the worship team does week in and week out. And they practice, the whole team is great. But one of the, like, one of the ongoing conversations that, that Emily and I have is, you know, what do you think about this song and and whether it's biblical or not. It sounds great, it's catchy, it's popular on the radio, but you know, where, where are these truths coming from? And, and one, one of my, my, my joys in coming here is knowing that our worship leader, our, not just our, our leader, but the whole team, they put a lot of thought into making sure the songs that we sing are theologically grounded in truth, not just in emotion. Not just in well, this feels good because we can get we, we we can get so carried away with like popular sayings or popular songs, and we begin to think that scripture says something that it doesn't. Um, and so, like for example, these aren't songs, but have you ever heard someone say, uh, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle? Okay, not in scripture. Or everything happens for a reason. I hate that. I. Like, you really want to get me frustrated and say that to me, okay? Um, that's, that's not in Scripture. Both of those are perversions of what Scripture does. Scripture does talk about those things, but not like that. And they are oversimplified, like vast oversimplifications of what the Bible actually says. But when we limit ourselves, um, when we don't ground our songs and our proverbs and our little cultural sayings in the truth of God's Word, we begin to believe things that Scripture does not actually say. Okay, so Paul says, let the word of God dwell in you richly with all wisdom 
And there is wisdom even in the songs and the hymns and all those things. And then verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So again, uh, that verse 17, that's going to set the stage for the interactions that Paul is about to describe. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So as we go through these next verses and you you see, you know, wife, do this, husband, do this, child, do this, fathers, do this. Um, Our mindset when we interact with the people in our homes needs to be that we are um, we are saying and doing the things, we, 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 we are saying the words of Christ. We are living out the love of Christ to the people in our homes. It should change everything. It should sober us and force us to reevaluate sometimes the careless words that we often aim in the direction of the people in our home and in, and in our workplace. Um, and the Spirit has convicted me several times throughout my life. When I was younger, as a teenager and young adult, you know, and you have your arguments with your parents, and so many times the Holy Spirit would be like, now, Jonathan, is, are those the words you really want to say? I'm, I'm saying these words in Jesus' name to my, my parents. You know, constantly I'm being reminded are the words that I am, and not by my wife, okay? I'm being reminded by the Holy Spirit, um, are, are, are the words that I say to my wife Are they expressive of the love and the will of Christ for my wife? The emotions that I display to my kids ought to reflect the heart and and the desires of Christ for my kids. And so this should sober us. And so very often when we come to a passage like this, many of us have read these verses before. It's easy for us to kind of tune out or to kind of brush over them because we're like, we get it. We know what these say. And so I don't want to... um, I don't want to try and put a new spin on it just for like the novelty of of something new or just to kind of keep your attention, okay? But what I do want to do is challenge us with this thought, okay? That everything that Paul is about to write about how we interact with with other people, um, everything that we are challenged to do, Jesus has done first. And Jesus has done perfectly. And Paul is not asking us to do anything that Jesus has not done already, Okay, so we're, and so as we go through these these verses, what I'm going to do is uh, instead of you know breaking down each of them, I'm going to share one or two verses, one or two cross references from the rest of Scripture that show us how Jesus did that already. And so the 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 idea is, if you're in Christ and you're wearing the wardrobe of Christ, then Jesus has already done these things in our own flesh, in our own strength. We cannot do these things perfectly. Okay, but when we are in Christ. Um, he has already accomplished them for us, and we absolutely can. We absolutely can do these things and live out this love because we are in Christ and he's already done it for us. Does that make sense? So, um, verse 18. Actually, before I do that, let me back up. One more thing just to kind of reinforce what I just said. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Leave that up there for a minute. Jesus knows what it feels like to be you. Jesus knows what it feels like to be tempted to sin. He knows what it feels like to be tempted to burst out in anger. He knows what it feels like to be tempted to be offended. 
He knows what it feels like to be tempted to be impatient. If we believe the word of God to be true, it says he was tempted in all ways as we are. In, in every way that we are tempted, he was tempted and yet without sin. And we cannot say, well, of course Jesus could do that because he's Jesus, he's God, all right? We're, we're gonna read uh, in, in one of our cross-references in, in, in Philippians that Jesus set aside every advantage of being God. That means there is nothing that Jesus did in life that we have in scripture. There, <coughs> sorry, there's nothing, I got excited. <clears throat> there's nothing that he did um, that, was, that, 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 that he, he was able to accomplish only because he's God. Everything that Jesus does or did in Scripture was dependent upon his relationship with the Father. Scripture says he, he sets aside every advantage of being divine. We cannot sit here and say, well, Jesus could do it because he was God, but I'm just human, so there's no way I can do that also. If that's true, it completely undermines everything Jesus has done for us. Okay, so um, he was tempted in all ways, just as we are, and yet without sin. Okay, um, yeah, so I've got a lot of cross-references here. Um, if you want to turn there, when I get to each of them, you can, but we're going to be going through them kind of fast, so you don't, you know, I, I don't expect you to. Um, in verse 18, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, so... Um, you know, if you've ever, you know, and, and here's another plug for the marriage conference. You should come to the marriage conference, okay? Um, uh, but if you've ever been to a marriage conference, you know, like, like these, these marital roles, almost, almost every time, they, they are touched upon, they, they are read about, okay? And, and, and because, as we often say, this idea of submission has become so offensive to us, it's become um, so, so it, 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 it's been tainted with the idea of, of oppression, like, oh, to, to ask us to be submissive is to be oppressive. Um, Jesus, of, of anyone who, who's ever lived, of anyone who's in this room, Jesus was the only person who ever had the right to say, I don't have to submit. There's no authority over him to force him to submit. Yeah, let's read just a couple of examples of what he does. In Luke chapter 2, verses 49 through 51, and so just a little bit of context, this is where Jesus is still um, a teenager or a preteen, he's 12 years old. Um, his parents have gone to Jerusalem to offer the sacrifices, and they're in this huge caravan, and they leave Jesus behind, right? They completely lose him, they leave him behind. He's in the temple, um, like, teaching and, and debating with, like, the Pharisees and the scribes and all these guys. Um, and three days later, Joseph and Mary are like, where is Jesus, right? We've, we've lost him, and so they go back looking for him. It's been days. They're frustrated. You guys know the story. <clears throat> when they finally find him in Luke 2, verses 49 through 51, it says, And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? So Jesus is saying, look, this is what I'm here for. This is the, the mission and the task that my father has set, like the, the whole reason why I'm here is to do this, okay? Um, and he's like 12, and you know, what must it be like to be, you know, anyways. Um, but they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject, and that word subject in the New King James is the same Greek word uh, from our 
passage in Colossians 3.18, when Paul says, wives, submit, submit, that is the same word that is used about Jesus uh, in relation to his parents, and he was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. So Jesus could have easily been like, look, um, Mary and Joseph, because, you know, <laughs> um, this is God's calling in my life. <laughs> this is the, the, the reason why I'm here is to be about my father's business. You should know this. Right? And, and really, if you know who I am, you don't actually have the authority to tell me where to go or where to be or whatever else. Jesus could have very easily and, and, and rightfully said, I don't have to submit to you. Right? But what does it say he did? He says, all right, let's go. You know, and so he goes back home and he submits to his earthly parents. Um, which I think we, 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 don't, we don't emphasize that part of the story enough. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it's not enough that he submits to earthly parents that he has no reason to, to submit to. Um, he submits to something far more uh, offensive, something that, um, I mean, we, we could say, well, he submitted to his parents to set a good example for us, which is great. But there's no reason for this next one. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Jesus allowed himself, he submitted himself to not just death, which would be bad enough, but to the most humiliating, excruciating death imaginable. He submits himself to that. He, he does not have to do that. He has all authority. Death has no authority over him. And so Jesus has set the example for us of submission. And so, you know, there's all kinds of all kinds of ideas and, and, and reasons why, you know, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives. But here's, here's the bottom line. Um, the more we embrace those roles, the closer we conform to Christ. The more like Jesus we become. And that's what I want to emphasize. It's not about us. It's not about, well, my rights and about my desires and me, me, me. It's about what Jesus has already done, and how can, we be me, how can we be more like Jesus? So verse 19, it says, And then husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. That word bitter, it literally means like to be, uh, to be irritated or to be impatient with, okay? Um, Paul says, don't be bitter towards them. Um, and so again, much has been made about what it means to love your wives. And so uh, this whole section is, 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 is a pretty close mirror image to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. So I do want to bring out that passage when it talks about husbands, because Paul expounds a lot more in that one. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, <clears throat> it says, uh, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Okay, so again, again Paul's saying, you want to be like Jesus? and love like Jesus. How did Jesus love the church? He gave himself for her. And why did he give himself for her? Uh, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And so the love of Christ for his church is not a selfish love, it's a love that seeks the, the, the sanctification and the, and the cleansing and the holiness and, and the good of the church um, for God's glory. And so Paul says, in the same way, husbands, love your wives, not with a selfish love. 
Don't love her so that she will be all you want her to be. Don't love her so that she'll fulfill your desires and your wants, okay? It's not about you. It's about, it's about Jesus. Love her in such a way that God can use that love to draw her closer and closer to the image of Christ and to prepare her for the revealing of our Lord. Okay, that's a high and holy calling. Jesus did it first. Um, and he, did, he didn't do it for us when we were super lovable, right? We read in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us and love us when we were at our best. You might say, well, you know, you don't know my wife. <laughs> you, you, you don't know what I have to put up with, okay? How can God call me to love her unconditionally and sacrificially? You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I may not, but Jesus certainly does because he loves you. And he loved you when you were at your worst, the worst version of yourself. That's the version that he died for. That's the version that he loves unconditionally. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Why? Because it'll make you more like Jesus, okay? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I don't think that Paul is... Like writing to like little kids, I don't I don't know that like little kids are sitting around listening to this letter. They get bored, right? Um, so very likely he's talking to like young adults, um, children who, who who maybe are of legal age, but they still have parents. Um, and he says, "Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord." Um, and that's tough. That's challenging enough as it is. But Jesus obeyed everything the Father told him, right? Um, and even when he prayed desperately. For there to be another way. If you remember in the garden, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. Why would you ever want to go to the cross? Um, so he's, he's praying desperately, uh, sweating drops of blood, that the Father would find another way. And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done, right? And then throughout his ministry, he says over and over again that everything he says and does is only by the will of the Father. So uh, John 5, 19 says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. And here again, here again is evidence that Jesus set aside his divine power and privilege. He's still divine. He's still God in, in his nature, but he sets aside those advantages. He says, I, I can't do anything. It's a strange thing to think Jesus says, there, I, I, I cannot do anything of my own will. Why? But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. He says, I'm only doing the things the Father has told me to do. And then in John 12, 49 through 50, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command of what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. So Jesus says, I don't do anything, I don't say anything, unless it comes directly from the Father. Again, Jesus did not have to do that. He didn't have to submit himself in that way, but he does. And so when we honor our parents, whether we're adults or not, doesn't mean we have to do everything that they say to do, right? Um, but we are to, to live towards them in a way that honors them, um, then we are, we are emulating that spirit and that heart of Christ where he says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. 
So this one, um, I'm going to take a little bit of a different slant on, um, because we often think not of Jesus as the Father, right, but of God the Father as the Father. Um, and so what I'm going to suggest is that the way Jesus interacted with his disciples, the way he taught them, the way he corrected them, the way he led them, is, is how fathers should teach and lead and guide their children, right? So fathers, do not provoke your children. And that word provoke, it means to like, um, to, to, to stir up or to, to get someone like, ah, oh, like just, you know, like, like you know how there's, there's like some people who, who you can be, you can be completely fine. You can be having, like be having a great day. And then you come across this person and they can say two words to you and it just ruins everything, right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Um, um, and, and sometimes, a lot of times, that person is family. Um, and so when he's saying, fathers, don't, don't, don't provoke your children, he's saying, don't, don't have this, this influence, don't have this effect on your kids where they're just constantly stirred up. They're just constantly not at peace, not at ease around you. They're, they're provoked, they're, they're, they're uncomfortable. And he says, lest they become discouraged. So I started to think about all the different ways, all the different times in Scripture that Jesus um, uh, finds teaching moments with his disciples because they have failed in, 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 in some way. And there's way more examples than I have Scripture for, right? Because we, we know over and over again, the, the disciples just did not get it. Over and over again, they were like, we, we think it should be this. You know, we think Jesus should come and like smite people with fire from heaven because we're offended. You know? And Jesus is like, no, that's not, that's not my way. You know? um, and and, and every, time, every time the disciples fail, Jesus' words to them are not, are not with this attitude of, oh, you messed up again. Come on, guys, what are you doing? Like, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe you, that, that you're just not getting it. Over and over again, his words to them uh, drive them towards healing, drive them towards restoration, drive them towards reconciliation, and not just in the small things. Like, we can kind of understand when the disciples are confused about um, how Jesus expects them to feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish, right? He calls them, oh, you of little faith. Well, that would be all of us, because I wouldn't understand it either. You know, we can understand when the disciples are freaking out because they're in a boat and there's a storm, and Jesus says, oh, you have a little faith, you know. And he's not, he's not condemning them. He's not mocking them. He's just saying, your faith needs to grow. Like right now, your, your faith is, is small, but, but it needs to grow. But it's the big things that get me. When Thomas completely doubts, he says, I don't believe in spite of everything that Jesus has taught us and prepared us for, I still do not believe and I will not believe until I see him with, with my own eyes. And when Jesus appears to Thomas, he doesn't say, Thomas, I'm so disappointed in you. I, I expected more. I thought I taught you better than that. That's not what Jesus says. He says, Thomas, I'm here. Here, look, feel, you know. Um, be blessed now that you see and believe. With Peter denying him three times, and Jesus reappears to Peter and pulls him aside. He doesn't say, now, Peter, I had plans for you. I, I had planned to use you for all these ways, but now that you failed me that severely, you know, I'm not sure it's going to work out. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus, uh, Peter, I, I know that you love me, and I, I still want you 
to feed my sheep. I still want you to take care of my people in spite of your failures. And Judas himself, uh, you know, when, when they're sitting around that table and Jesus says, it's the one that I pass the cup to, he's the one that's going to betray me, sharing a cup was a sign of fellowship. Sharing a cup was a sign of, just, of, of, of close friendship. And there are many people who, who believe that when Jesus passes that cup to Judas, he's offering him one more chance, one more opportunity to, 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 to walk away from his plan and to accept Christ, right? Um, and Jesus, knowing, knowing full well what, what's going to happen, still offers him that. So, um, you know, parents, how do we teach our kids? How do we teach them when they mess up, when they make mistakes, when they um, infuriate us, uh, when, they, when they're not growing up into how, how we think they should be, how we think their lives should look, you know, um, are we Jesus to them? Do we find opportunities to be more like Christ in those times? And then verse 22, bond servants. And so real quick, bond servants, this, this, in, in, in Paul's time, this was still a, a household role. Um, uh, and so you could be a bond servant either by your own choice, if you can't take care of yourself, if you don't have the means or a home or whatever, you can say, well, hey, I'll, I'll come work for you, and in, in return, you take care of me. Yeah, great. Or, um, or sometimes it could be forced. Sometimes you could be an actual slave. Right? So the word bond servant could be, could be either one. Um, Paul says bond servants, whether you're by choice, whether you're in it by force, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service, and that means not just when people are looking, not just when your master is there watching, but even when he's not there, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Um, so Jesus, again, um, he had the right to come to this world as a ruler. He had the right to come to this world as a conqueror. And how does he choose to come? As a servant. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, let this mind be in you. And here's this verse I was talking about earlier. Um, let this mind be in you, which was, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and the new King James says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, um, which I think is, is not the best translation. I think a more, a more accurate understanding is did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. He didn't take advantage of being equal with God, right? Um, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of what? A bondservant. The, the very same word that Paul uses here. Jesus took upon himself the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And then in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 28, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, in regards to like power and, and authority and who's in charge, he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus had every right and authority to come and be served. But he says, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve. 
And so if you find yourself in a position in life, whether it's by choice, whether, whether you're, you're working the job that you want or whether you're working a job that you hate, um, find opportunities to serve. Find opportunities to be Jesus in that role. And Paul says, um, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. There is no... Um, there are, there are no exceptions. God's command to be honest and to work diligently and to work well doesn't change because of your financial status. Sometimes we can make excuses for ourselves, right? But rich or poor, it doesn't matter. God expects us to work honestly and with humility as representatives of Christ. And finally, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In John 13, verses 12 through 15, um, we have this, this, this beautiful example. It says, um, so when he had washed their feet, so Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. So he says, you call me master, you call me Lord, and I am. So you're, you're right about that. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one, one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And Jesus goes beyond, above and beyond what Paul says here. Paul says, you know, masters, be just and fair. Jesus goes beyond what's right and fair for those who, who the rest of the world would consider they're beneath you and you're serving them. And so whether you find yourself in a place of authority, whether you find your place where you are forced in submission to authority, regardless of which role you're in, there's opportunity to be more like Jesus. And Jesus has done it first in both ways. Okay, So wherever you find yourself, Paul is saying your identity in Christ affects the way you interact with other people dramatically, consistently, um, if you are in Christ, your life looks different. The worship team can come up. Um, <clears throat> anything that Scripture calls upon us to do as members of Christ uh, is impossible to uphold as long as we choose to continue to wear the rags of bondage, the rags of identity in this world. Um, you cannot be, you cannot be a God-honoring wife. You cannot be a God-honoring husband. You cannot be a God-honoring parent or child or boss or employee if your identity isn't firmly established in Jesus. And you'll know when it is. You will know. Because the changes that Christ makes in our lives, they do not and they should not diminish based on who's watching us. And so, um, again, if you're honest with yourself, and it's just, you know, it's just between you and God, if you're honest with yourself, what would the testimony of your spouse or your children or the people that encounter you at work, what would, the, what would their testimony be about the integrity of your identity in Christ? And this is a sobering reality for me. And, you know, I'm not up here, like, pointing my finger because, you know, I'm like, you guys got to figure this out. Um, I'm up here telling you that this is, this is, this, this is something that I, I, I ask my wife constantly, you know, am I the same person um, at home, as I am when other people are, are watching. And she'll be honest with me. And your spouse should have the freedom uh, and the confidence to be honest with you. 
Okay, wherever you are, uh, whoever you find yourself around, um, identity in Christ should never, should never diminish just because of where you are. Um, and remember that Jesus is firm but gentle, just like with his disciples in Scripture. The mistakes that we make won't be used as opportunities to beat us down or to drive us into more feelings of guilt and failure, but will be opportunities for Christ to continually heal us, restore us, and change us and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. So uh, I pray that in every role you play in life, by the Holy Spirit that is in you, uh, and in myself as well, that we will live out with integrity our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, uh, that nothing, that there would be nothing that we give an excuse for that can somehow diminish the power of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, I pray that there would be no reason for us to believe that we don't have everything we need when we find ourselves in Christ. I pray that all the other things that we try to guard our hearts with, all the other things that we try to allow to define us, whether it's the anger or the fear, um, the pride, whatever else it is, continue to show us, Father, reveal to us, open our eyes to how empty those things are and how deceitful they are and how, how so often we cling to them without even knowing it. Lord, we just want to be more and more like Jesus. We want to be your agents in this world. We want to, um, we want to, to show Jesus to a world that is lost and dying and that, that is in desperate need of, of the truth and the joy and the hope that, that, uh, that is present in Christ. So would you empower us? Would you lead us? Would you glorify yourself through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.